We are in Isaiah chapter 54. Isaiah 54. Throughout history, God has sought to get the attention of his people Israel. He's uh, done this very frequently through hardship, through punishment, uh, the punishment of warfare. Uh, Israel has been remarkable, as I've noted. Twice they've been, at least twice in history, they've been totally exiled from their land to the point that their land was uninhabitable. And yet they re-inhabited it, and they brought it back to uh, prosperity. Even today, Israel is a major exporter of technology and, and, uh, and, and other goods and services. Um, I don't know of another nation quite like Israel in that regard. Uh, once again today, Israel's being attacked by her enemies. If you pulled up, I pulled up earlier this morning, CNN.com, BBC.com, the first line item was Israel-Hamas uh, conflict. And today I'm going to uh, read, even as Israel is now at the focus of world attention and, and playing uh, some kind of a game of international chess that is just, you know, five-dimensional chess. It's just unbelievably difficult to understand the beginning from the end for the nation of Israel. But I'm going to read about a restoration of Israel that is prophesied here in Isaiah 54, 700 B.C., that has never been true. It's never come to pass fully in history. And it is yet to come to pass, and I believe it will yet come to pass. Now, there's been maybe small deposits on this restoration of Israel and this protection of Israel throughout history, so much so that some theologians would say, well, this is all metaphor. Uh, it's big metaphor for small deliverances throughout. And yeah, they're going to go into the eternal state, and then everything will be all right. I don't think that's the case. I think there is a specific kingdom. Uh, I think there's a lot of texture and, and activity at the end times that, that the Bible includes. And because the Bible includes it, I think we need to be aware of it. Uh, is there metaphorical meaning behind all of it? Yes, the metaphor is always the big deal. Um, uh, he shall be born of a virgin. Uh, you know, the metaphor behind that is he is the son of God. But he was literally born of a virgin too. So the metaphor is the big deal, but, um, but, but the reality is still the reality. Uh, Isaiah 54 and next week's chapter, chapter 55, do go together. Uh, with this chapter being uh, God's announcement of what he's going to do for his bride, for his, his uh, bride that is full of shame and how he's going to restore her. Chapter 55 is going to get into how uh, Israel as a nation, which really begins one person at a time and applies to you and me one person at a time, how we are to respond, how we are to uh, accept his gift by faith. So as I read chapter 54, just look for these things in the first eight verses. You're going to see three levels of shame centered around women. Okay, uh, because Israel here, the metaphor is going to be that she is the bride of Yahweh in this chapter. And, and those three metaphors uh, of shame are the shame of barrenness. And, and we think of the sorrow of barrenness today, but in antiquities there was a shame. The shame of widowhood. And we think of the sorrow of widowhood today, but there was a shame of widowhood in antiquities. And then finally the uh, shame of being an adulteress who has been cast out of her house. In verses 9 and 10, we're going to see the foundation, that God is committed to them, and he is as committed as he is to never flooding the world again uh, uh, through Noah's flood. And then in the last, uh, uh, the last verses, we're going to see promises, uh, uh, verses 11 through the end, promises of how God is going to make Israel beautiful. Her city's beautiful, the entryways, uh, beautiful mosaics of precious stones, and, and how uh, when there are attacks, they're not going to work. And, and again... This wonderful kingdom era that, that we're looking at is going to have attacks. It's going to have naysayers. But our Savior is going to rule with a rod of iron, and he's going to put every one of them down. 
And so again, part of the texture of, uh, of, of end times. So let's look at chapter 54, if we could, Isaiah 54. Sing, O barren one who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitation be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will, and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more uh, go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and your wall of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall refute every tongue that, ar- that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we look forward to the restoration of Israel like this that we've just read. We do not understand this to have happened in history. We see deposits. We see that you have your hand on this nation. Uh, But, Father, we are looking forward to the blessings that you have promised to Israel. We thank you that you are a God of your word. We thank you that you write your metaphors in space and time and material because you are God. Bless us as we study your word. We pray that we would understand. We pray that we would grow by it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Israel is called upon here in point number one to rejoice over future restoration. And in verse number one, that begins, sing, O barren one. Uh, that singing is an act of rejoicing. O sing, sing, O barren one who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. And here we have in verse number two, the language of a nomad. Nomads lived in tents, and when you uh, added on to your tent, you would take goatskin and fashion a roof, 
And then you would take fabric and you would create walls of privacy and you would enlarge that tent. So verse number two, enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitation be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Cords hold up the poles. Uh, and strengthen your stakes. There's going to be a lot more weight here because you've got a much larger tent. That's the metaphor that's being painted here. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. People there is a verb. You will people the desolate cities. There was a promise to Abraham made in Genesis 15 and verse 8 that I have uh, not seen anywhere in history come true. God told Abraham that he would have all of the land from the uh, Euphrates to the great river of Egypt. Uh, That's 300,000 square miles. They've only had 30,000 square miles in all of their history at at their their largest time. At least that's what one one, uh, scholar had estimated. Listen to Genesis 15, 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, it may or may not include the, uh, the uh, desert impassable areas here, uh, but, but certainly there would be a line through the Fertile Crescent down through here that would be promised in those words to Israel. We've never seen Israel occupy that much land. Uh, Abraham obeyed God, but his people have never had that. And here in this prophecy, it's saying, hey, get ready to enlarge your tent. You're going to people the desolate cities. You're going to possess the nations. And so as I understand it, we're going to see Genesis 15, 18 fulfilled. God is a God of his word. Literally, in an era in this earth, Israel will possess the land. So the idea here is that they need to be prepared to grow quickly. And and understand that all of us are a part of this unfolding plan. These people who received this promise, uh, they, they were 100 years before the exile into Babylon which Isaiah is prophesying that God's going to deliver them out of exile and ultimately into this kingdom era where everything's going to be fantastic. Okay, but the people receiving this from Isaiah are going to die before they even get into exile. And people reading it in exile are going to die before they get out of exile. But this word is to them. And they have an individual response. They needed to know that their lives were part of a greater plan. And then you take those in exile who are going to go back to Jerusalem, a wasteland, and rebuild the walls. And they're going to face opposition and hardship. And, and they need to know that this is all headed somewhere. And so that idea, prepare to enlarge your tent. Even though you will die before the exile. Even though you will die individually in exile. Even though you will die rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Understand this is history. It is going somewhere. God has his hand on Israel. And we need to, we need to, uh, we need to live in preparation for that and give our lives to that. I would say that looks like loving God, studying his word, loving his people, strengthening his people, sharing the gospel, all of those things. In verse 4, let's talk about shame. Uh, we had three levels of shame here uh, that, that are expressed. One was in being barren. In, in, in verse 4, we're going to see a reference to widowhood. And then we will see a reference to, um, to a, a young wife who is cast out. And the only reason that would happen, my understanding, would be some kind of adultery. So in verse 4, fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced, for you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. How is widowhood a reproach? There could be all kinds of answers to that culturally. Uh, Cultures differ 
Some cultures, would, people would just generally assume, oh, uh, she's a widow because God's judging her, that God has, you know, or if, you, if you're in a, a polytheistic culture, the gods are against her. Uh, in, in South Africa, I actually ran into a really odd attitude towards widows. And, and, and widows, for instance, after a certain hour in the morning can no longer cross the street. So they cannot cross a public street. So, and, and so yeah, a widow will be stuck over on the sunny side of the street, standing in the heat, waiting for a taxi going the wrong way that will then you know, drop her off so she could go back the right way because she got caught on the wrong side of the street after a certain hour of the day. <laughs> like, what? What's going on here? Okay, behind, so I had to ask. You know, it's just, what is going on here? And this is one of many mores against widows. Well, okay, understand if you've got a young couple, man and wife, and the woman dies... That's really sad and unfortunate for the man. Okay, but if the man dies, there's a suspicion that she poisoned his food. See, because if a woman kills a man, there'll be evidence because there's violence, right? But when a woman, if a man kills a woman, there's evidence because there's violence. There's bruises or whatever. But if a woman kills a man, how does she accomplish that? Well, you know, by poisoning the food. And so there's just a suspicion that she poisoned him. Now, so if her husband dies and that evening she is out partying in the town, crossing the street this way, that way, going all over the place, then you're really going to wonder, right? But if she is living in sorrow and restricted and, and, and adopting a life that is just so miserable that it's, you would never choose this over living with that husband, then she's proving to the community that she didn't kill her husband. So, yeah, cultures are just powerful things. And, and so if you go to another culture... Uh, you're going to run into expectations that you never dreamt of that make no sense until you sit down and you start listening to them. And so uh, somehow in, in this culture, there's some shame with widowhood. I don't think it's that idea of poisoning, but there is some shame. The shame uh, simile continues with that of, uh, of, of, of a spouse that cheated. If we look in, um, in um, verse number six, for the Lord has called you like a wife de- deserted. And grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. So, the progression, you get the progression from barrenness to widowhood to adultery. This is the shame, this is the kind of shame that Israel has had to bear to quote some random protester this week. You know, we've got protesters all over who are against Israel, quoting, chanting, from the river to the sea, from the Jordan, push them into the sea. Where do you expect them to go, one reporter asked. The answer was H-E-L-L. And one very verbose protester said, the Jews are the problem. The Jews have always been the problem. And so this is a nation that understands shame. Uh, you know, this, this is a nation where, uh, you know, if, if you uh, are a Jew wearing your little hat in New York, you put a hoodie on over that and you hide your identity. There's a great deal of shame for God's people. Let's bring that down, though, to you and me because we understand shame and we fear shame and rightly so. Imagine, just think of your two or three biggest areas of sin struggle, whatever they might be, you know, whether it's some kind of pride some kind of perversion, some kind of materialism, some kind of jealousy or envy, some kind of evil thinking about other people, 
anger. Just, just think about your sin taking you to the next level and then to the next level. Sin always has a next level. And, and then to the next. And, 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 and sin taking you beyond what you ever thought it would take you. And then it all comes out into the open. There was a gentleman who I was an, uh, acquainted with, and he left ministry, and I had no idea why. I wondered. And when I saw and met his son in a, another place, he gave his last name. I'm like, oh, are you the son of so-and-so? Because uh, I, I, I worked with this person. And the son's face just turned beet red, and he tried to hide it and say, oh, yes, yes, yes that's, that's my dad. But, but the redness of his face would, told me that, okay, well, maybe he's out of ministry for a really tough reason. Just imagine your relatives. If your sin takes you as far as it wants to take you, imagine your relatives, when they're identified as your relative, just turning beet red. I would rather die. And so we all understand shame. And, and even the... I, I don't even know the specific sins but I, I, of this gentleman, but I'm sure of this, those same sins are struggles in my heart and soul. Uh, you know, I, I don't look down on him and judge him at all. I look at him and I fear. We need to be serious about participating with the Word of God when it exposes our sinfulness, with the, with the Holy Spirit when he uses the Word of God to expose our sinfulness. We need to be serious about participating turning from sin, turning toward God, this shame. But, but as I say all of this, don't gloss over this passage of promise because maybe you're already there. Maybe you've already owned some sins that you're just so ashamed of and they have come out in the open. Uh, the, the promise here is that God is going to remove all shame. The shame of barrenness, of here the, the metaphor is barrenness, of widowhood, of, 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 of uh, promiscuity. That's shame. Uh, there is a time where, praise God, we are going to be set right. And our account is going to be set right. And the foundation of it we studied last week. It's the Savior who is bruised for our iniquities. By His stripes we are healed. As we read earlier in our opening reading, He is the propitiation for our sin, the, the atoning gift, the pleasing offering for our sin. So just... Um, just keep in mind that, that while this, this metaphor is to national Israel, the, these were indiv- national Israel will only be right with God as individuals get right with God, and individuals back here are being challenged to get right with God. You and I can apply it in the same way. In verses 7 and 8, he says, just for a brief moment, <laughs> you see that? In verse 7, he says, for a brief moment I deserted you. Okay, 70 years Exile in Babylon. Some people lived and died. That brief moment was their whole life. Okay? And, and so how can God say it was for a brief moment? Because you're going to live eternally in his presence. Eternally. And, and this life is going to be like a bad dream. <laughs> it's, a, it's a bad dream and also but a, a precious dream too. Because there will be many triumphs. Many times where you are walking by faith, not by sight. Looking dimly as in a mirror, the New Testament says, and mirrors were made out of stone or metal. They weren't like the mirror you'll find down the hallway in the, in the restroom. These were dark, polished pieces of metal or stone, and you, oh, yeah, I can kind of see. It's kind of like looking in your cell phone using this as a mirror. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's very dim, right? And, uh, and, and so that's what this life is. 
you're walking, you, 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 you see with the eyes of faith, but it's a dim eyesight. It's, it's not all clear. You have not seen God face to face. And that is precious. And so this life is a brief moment in which if you are overcome by sin, God is going to use that to punish you if you're his child. And if you're right with him, you're going to be earning eternal reward. But all of it, all of it will be like a, a bad dream. I mean, it's just like we, we will be in eternity forever. And so I think verse 7 is a good perspective. It's for a brief moment. All of life really is for a brief moment. Seventy years in exile, people lived and died in exile. It was a brief moment in light of eternity. In the middle two verses here, we just have God's covenant of peace, and he, God's making a statement and using a, a, a simile. The simile will be the, the Noahic covenant, the promise to Noah, um, that, that, that uh, his covenant of peace will be enduring for Israel, and it'll have strong foundations. Look at verse 9. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. So it sounds like the, the, the sin struggles with Israel as a nation are over. That just the, This is a nation that is following God. Verse 10, For the mountain may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. So after Noah's flood, God made a covenant that the world would never again be destroyed there's a psalm, I didn't look it up to quote it, but there's a psalm that talks about how God raised the mountains and he created the deep places of the sea, that the, that the ocean waters could never again pass over the land. And, and you look at the topography as God has changed this earth and you go out to the mountains and you see how they go up over 10,000 feet above sea level. There's just not a physically possible way for the earth to be completely flooded. The way God changed the topography of the earth. I mean, if he were to create more water than exists, yes. But, but as far as the existing, what was created during the Genesis 6 uh, days of creation, uh, there is no possible way that the entire world can be flooded again. Number one, because God promised it's not going to happen. Number two, he fashioned it, refashioned it in such a way with such depths and such heights that it's simply not going to happen. And so God says to Israel, just as that global flood is not going to happen, cannot happen, even so, when this era comes and Israel is right with me, uh, it is not going to happen that, that, uh, that I'm, I, I will not be angry with you again. I will not rebuke you again. We're going to see next week that every one of your children are going to learn from me. It's going to be national salvation. It happens one heart at a time, but God's going to work in all these individuals' hearts and bring Israel to himself. And this is the heart of God. He does not delight in punishing evil. Ezekiel 33, 11, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But, here's what I have pleasure in, that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. His pleasure is in repentance. He, 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 he does not enjoy punishing us, but if you turn from evil, oh, he will be so pleased. He will have great joy together with you. We go to the last section. God promises an era where all Israel will be right with him and he will provide peace. In verses 11 through 17, 
And there's a fourth point. I want to go just to look at this future era. I want to go to Revelation 20 in a fourth point here today. But in verse number 11, uh, O afflicted one, storm-tossed, and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony. Now, I'm not even sure I'm pronouncing that right. This word antimony, it, it had something to do with red, but um, there, was a, there was a third definition that the, in, in the uh, Hebrew dictionary that had, and, and it labeled this verse as meaning this, had to do with mortar. So that makes sense to me. I will set your stones in mortar and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate. And there's alternative translations, but you know what agates are, right? I mean, uh, nice, beautiful, layered rocks, right? Yeah, we know. Okay, now what is this about? Is this a giant agate that makes a gate? I don't think so. I think this is mosaics. And, and this is Beit Shan in Israel. And, and uh, this is a town that was just, it was a Roman town that was just devastated by an earthquake. And in a single day, it was depopulated. It, the, the earthquake just ended the existence of the town. So it's been uh, excavated. And, and this is my mom and dad here walking on, on a mosaic here. And, um, and uh, here's a, uh, another view of the, the colonnade. These are huge. I, I forget if they're 20, 30 feet tall. But uh, you could see that in one era, uh, what was opulent, uh, and this would be closer to the era of Isaiah, what was opulent was to have mosaics on the streets, and then later they covered that up and they went to marble. And um, uh, this is in Beit Shan. There's uh, mosaics there as well. You can have mosaics on walls. You can have them on floors. And so what I'm seeing here is the cities of Israel are going to have grand entrances with mosaics with fine jewels. Okay, just to keep reading there with me. Um, uh, let's start in verse number 11. I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles uh, or crystals, and all your walls of precious stones. Uh, so you're going to have just beautiful cities. Now get this next verse. All your children shall be taught by the Lord. All your children shall be taught by the Lord. All your children will have a heart for him. And great shall be the peace of your children. Peace in, in Hebrew shalom, it's not just the absence of conflict. It's the, it's the presence of blessing and abundance. Verse 14, in righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear. And from terror, for it shall not come to you. If anyone stirs up strife, now that's a first class conditional. If and for the sake of argument, let's assume it's true doesn't necessarily have to be true, but I think the possibility is there for this era. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not for me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows on fire the fires of coal, who produces weapons for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall refute Every tongue that rises against you in judgment. Are there tongues rising against Israel in judgment today? It's just all over the place. There's going to come an era that that's just going to be put down. It's going to be ended. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. Isaiah Jeremiah 33.9 says, This city shall be to me a name of joy. A praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and prosperity I will provide for it. Well, as we uh, look at this, I just want, 
I, my concern for Christians is that we look at the end times and we look at heaven, and it's all very flat and it lacks detail, and the Bible is full of detail. It's full of detail about these future eras, and it's full of details about the eternal state. Now, they're bits and pieces, and it's hard to piece together. And so I'm going to put a chart up on the wall. I'm not putting this chart up on the wall to say we've got it all figured out. Here's the chart. Boom. All right. This is the grid into which I think. It does represent how I believe, but, but it has things like a pre-tribulational rapture on it. I believe in a pre-trib rapture. I cannot find a passage of Scripture that explicitly teaches that truth. What I find is about three passages of Scripture from which I infer that truth, and other Christians infer other truths. And oftentimes when you say, oh, I've got a passage, if you look at it logically, it proves the pre-trib rapture, the, the post-trib believer will say, you know, if you look at this logically, it proves the post-trib. And, and so I, I, just, I, I, think, I think this gets into the area of inference, and uh, it, it's not one of those doctrines that I'm as sure as I am on the virgin birth. You know, virgin birth is 100% certain. Um, in terms of the pre-trib rapture, I'm uh, probably 70, 30, 80, 20. And if you see the desecration, the, the abomination that makes desolate, well, dig in your heels for another three and a half years because I got it wrong. Um, you know, so we, we approach this with some humility, all right? But you know, the, in my grid, you had Christ coming to earth, the cross, Jesus returned to heaven. And this gap here is the church age. We don't know how long it's going to last. Then there's going to be a... Uh, Rapture of the church is, again, a pre-trib rapture if you, if you hold to the same view that I do in, in, in these things. There will be a Mideast peace treaty sometime after that, days, years, don't know. Um, there will be, it could be decades. There's nothing, nothing wrong with that being decades, too. I mean, we just, uh, God moves in his time. It's not disclosed. I, I think it will be fairly soon. Three and a half years of peace uh, at Israel, uh, Israel at peace. Three and a half years of judgment and wars. The Antichrist will defile, declare himself world ruler in the midst of all that. Believers will be in heaven at the time, marriage supper of the land, uh, lamb. Um, Christ returns, Armageddon, Satan bound. Millennial kingdom, thousand years. That's where I'm placing this text. Okay? I'm just placing it in the millennial kingdom. And uh, then you have the great white throne judgment. The new earth, eternal state. And, and that new heaven, new earth. Uh, a lot of people see us living in heaven forever. Very comfortable. Very boring. Um, I, I see us on a new earth, happily, actively engaged in serving our Lord and caring for the planet. And so, uh, very different. And, and again, my concern is just that a lot of people, uh, a lot of Christians just have this, um, what they look forward to after death is, well, they're in a better place. He's at peace. Does the Bible have anything more to say than that? I think so. Okay. And, and so I think we want to put our head in that space. So um, these promises find ultimate fulfillment in a millennial kingdom is my understanding. A millennial, thousand-year kingdom. Now the metaphor behind this is God loves Israel. God is in power. He will deliver Israel. That's the metaphor. That is the important thing. The literal thousand years is not as important as the fact that our God reigns. But with the first coming of Jesus Christ, I can find no metaphors that were not fulfilled explicitly in history, in the time-space continuum. I can't find a single thing that you can spiritualize away on the prophecies of the Old Testament. Uh, the, the, the Magi come looking for Jesus, and, and, and the, uh, the rabbis open up uh, the Old Testament, and they say, oh, go to Bethlehem, five miles away. They go to Bethlehem, there he is. 
out of Egypt I've called my son, the metaphor, uh, you know, that, uh, by the way, being born in Bethlehem, that, the, the metaphor there is he's Davidic. The Davidic promises is fulfilled. That's the bigger deal. He could have been born in New Jersey, as far as you and I care, but, but Bethlehem is the city of David. And, and it fulfills a promise. He's Davidic. That's, that's the metaphor. Um, out of Egypt, I've called my son. The metaphor is there. He identifies with the people of Israel who came out of slavery. But he literally went to Egypt, and he literally came back from Egypt. And, and that's just how I understand the second coming uh, prophecies to be as well. So um, Isaiah 60, verse 20, will be in in about uh, two months here. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fulfill out, fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. So that raises the question in this era, in this, uh, in this kingdom, there's going to be a long life. But if a piano falls, uh, there, there'll be glorified believers in this kingdom as I understand. There'll also be human beings procreating, some saved, some not. If a piano falls someone during the millennial kingdom, will they die? I, I think so. And then they'll be resurrected at the end of the uh, millennium. But, uh, um, and, and so uh, there's going to be activity during this kingdom. But if somebody does die at 100 years old, they'll be like, oh, he was so young. He's just getting started. Um, we don't relate to it that way today. Zechariah 13, 1 through 3, if anybody is a false prophet, the ones who run him through with the sword will be his own mom and dad who bore him. People's hearts will be so much with God. If you've ever wondered, oh, I have a son or I have a daughter who does not love the Lord. How can heaven be heaven without them? Uh, when your heart is right, if they are an enemy of God, you would be the one to run them through with the sword. And that's what we see in the uh, millennial kingdom, uh, that, that false prophets will be executed. In Zechariah 14, we see that nations who rebel and don't bring their offerings and aren't uh, obeying God will experience drought and famine and plagues. And, and we see other texts that refer to our Lord and Savior ruling the nations with a rod of iron. Well, where does that happen? I think it's in the millennial kingdom. So, a um, lot to learn there. But if you turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. And in verse 19, you have the rider on a white horse with the host of heaven coming and destroying all the enemies. And in chapter 20... We begin in verse 1, Revelation chapter 20 and verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So we get the term millennial kingdom. And threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. More texture, <laughs> okay? After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw the thrones and seated on them were those whom the, uh, to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. So this includes those who died as martyrs in the tribulation, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That's, again, what I see as the millennial, millennial kingdom. Now, some Christians say that is, um, they're called all millennial. They don't believe, they, they, they take this to be figurative, symbolic, metaphor, pure metaphor. And I would agree, the metaphor is the bigger deal. Our God reigns. Our God is in control. I, I just think that God writes his metaphors in history. Verse 5, 
The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are in the four corners of, at the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog, those are words that were coined by Ezekiel. I believe that they are a cipher, a word puzzle that means Babylon. Uh, you can, uh, we, we will study this. We'll be in Revelation next year, so we can study that then further. Or you can go back in our, in our uh, Ezekiel series and see why I believe it's a cipher. Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And I'll just read the first verse of the next chapter. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. So, again, I share all of that just to say that there's a great deal of information, details in the Scripture uh, you can write them all off as metaphors, but you're going to write, be writing off a lot of promises in the minor prophets of the Old Testament where the enemies of God are going to be uh, punished in specific ways where some of the enemies of God will be converted to Christ. Uh, again, you're just going to be metaphor, 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 metaphor. I mean, hundreds, if not over a thousand metaphors that have no bearing on human history that yet to come. I just don't see that in the first coming. I don't see that in the second coming either. So, uh, so anyway, the, the big idea out of today's text in, in Isaiah is that God offers restoration after we have earned shame. Our sin has brought us a reputation of which we can be ashamed, but God brings us peace. The basis was chapter 53, verse 5. He was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. God offered his son to take the punishment, and to be our righteousness. That's God's end. That's God's provision. Next week, we're going to see our end. Chapter 55, verse 1, Come, everyone who thirsts, come. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Chapter 55, verse 6, Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. Repent. And the unrighteous man, his thoughts, even repenting of our thought life. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God. For he will abundantly pardon, abundantly pardon. I need that. There's absolutely no reason for you to wait until next week to seek the Lord, to come to him, to forsake your wicked ways. You can do that today. 
God wants to remove all of your shame. Will you allow him to do that through Jesus Christ? Have you done so? Have you trusted Christ? Christians, world history is headed somewhere, and it's headed somewhere big. You have your part to play in it today. You may die before the next big event unfolds, although it's really... I know every Christian has said this in every era. It just seems suspiciously close to the end. Some amazing things unfolding. What are you to do today? You are to love God today. You are to love one another today. You are to love the lost and to show them the gospel today. We will be in his presence very soon, and that is all thanks to Jesus Christ. But we will also be very glad for every act of sanctification, every time. You may not have perfect victory over your sin, but every time you turn from it, you please your Father. Every time you forsake your wicked way, you please your Father. Let's bow forward to prayer, and then we will celebrate and remember our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and even mourn over the uh, sacrifice that he had to make for our sin. We'll observe the Lord's table. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we bow before you, we thank you that you are loving God, we own our shame. And uh, you, Father, own love, mercy, compassion, forgiveness. You are the author of all. Thank you. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. He lived a hard life. He also was tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin. He lived a righteous life. He has earned the status in your presence as a righteous human being. Thank you, Father, that in your economy of justice, this is shared with us. The hard and difficult and righteous life of Jesus is credited to our account. Father, you put him to grief for our sins. You caused him to bear our punishment. And Father, we thank you as we remember that punishment now. He despised the shame. For the joy that was set before him. That means he counted the shame as nothing. Even though, Father, the shame was great. Nearly infinite. The shame of the sin of all mankind. Nearly infinite. He bore all of that. Becoming sin for us. And so, Father, we pause to remember. And we pause to give thanks to our Savior. And we pause to commit ourselves that if one man died for all, then all have died to themselves. That we should live to ourselves no longer. We should live to his glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.